Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the January 22nd, 2023 session, focusing on Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nothing never happens. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Daniel Glaze. And I'm Burt Montgomery. All of all of us are really smart people, right? <laughs> I, think I think so. so. Wait, I, I, when I think of intelligent people, you are the people that come to mind. I think of us as well. <laughs> you think so of nice. us as what, Daniel? As well. Oh, as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, well, I think of the three of y'all as, as that way. But. Oh, hardly. <laughs> but I think of you guys because you're always learning about things. And, and so when I'm with you, I learn something new. And as we are beginning a new year, I, I'm very curious, what's something new you're learning about these days? Well, last couple of weeks, I've been trying to learn about what all is involved in putting solar panels on my roof. Ooh, Because cool. um, my roof line here is sort of a little bit of a new development in the last uh, several years. And so my roof is above the tree line and I get sun all day long. Wow. There is not a central repository of information. <laughs> and there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of scam artists and other mm-hmm. things. So trying to navigate through that is is a little tough. And there's so many different ways to do it. Purchase it outright, lease it, etc. Mm-hmm. So just trying to figure that out and see if that's right for our family and fascinating so and also how much good could i do there or is there a better way for me to Mm -hmm. invest in greener lifestyle for my family and me well i i'm taking a new direction in my in my reading personal reading and um listeners know i'm a huge fanatic of uh, stephen king and i've decided that there are other fiction writers out there that I should probably explore. And, uh, you know, I'm 54 years old. And in high school, I never had to read Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, So I'm reading, I've just now got my first ever Kurt Vonnegut book. Actually, I've got two. And uh, I've just started getting into Vonnegut. And I am loving his style of writing. So I'm learning a whole lot. So if I start doing lots of stream of consciousness, and lots of really bizarre stuff going forward, it's because I'm learning new stuff from Vonnegut. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not nearly as impressive as the two of you right now. Um, I am in a stage of life. I typically really love to take classes. Um, lately, I have been daydreaming about taking a pottery class because it's something I've always wanted to learn. Um, and one day I will, but it's not there right now. So what I am learning while doing right now is how to teach someone to drive. Um, I did not know that teaching someone to drive was such a difficult thing. Like, I feel like I have told my child um, lots of things, like most of the things that they need to know. But then when they start driving, Mm -hmm. you realize, oh, I didn't tell you how to do that. Yeah, that's a thing. Let's talk about it in real time, like (laughs) while you're doing it. Um, So in addition to learning this new thing, I also have a dramatic increase in my anxiety. (laughs) And your car insurance. And my car insurance. (laughs) That's very true. So what you're saying is in addition to being a teenager and and needing to take driver's ed, 
then a parenting class on how to it, teach driver's ed. It would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. did you cover all of these things before you got in the car? Because you think you've done all the things. Like, for the last year, every time we came up to a new scenario, I would say, this is what I'm doing. You're going to need to know how to do this. We would just kind of talk about it. There were things that didn't happen in the course of that process. <laughs> and then you learn them as the person is driving. You, you need a pre-flight checklist. You do. <laughs> you need someone like Daniel to yes. write you a pre-flight ah. checklist <laughs> to make sure you've done all the things you were supposed to do. <laughs> so here, here's what I told my children. I, I can't say that it mattered, but what I told my children when I was teaching them how to drive was every time you get in the car, remember that everyone is out to get you. <laughs> I think a healthy sense of paranoia is very effective behind the wheel. You know, that's not wrong. It's not. <laughs> but you know what? In our first driving lesson, um, I only had to yell one time and it was brake, brake, brake right now. <laughs> what do you want me to break? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Well, I hope you survive that. I'm sure you will. I will. I will. She'll be a good driver <laughs> oh, uh, yes. once she figures out all the things. <laughs> <laughs> it's a process. It is indeed. <laughs> I I have been uh, fascinated of late by the new work that's happening in artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, the chat bots that are online and you can feed them questions. And yeah, I, I feed them very important questions often. So I, I asked, I, the first thing I asked the chatbot to do was to write a poem about pimples. And Please tell me you saved it. Oh, I did. And it's really good. I think you should put it in the show notes. I should. I, I will. I'll put it in there. It's really pretty funny. I'm just a middle schooler down deep. You um, really are. So, but no, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And it, of course it's in its infancy. So just wondering what is it going to be like how will it affect things it could be good it could be bad it's like any tool it you know it can be used for good or ill so anyway yeah it's, it's a fun little diversion um to kind of keep up with what's happening there well a part of a part of being people of faith is i think um realizing that we don't know as much as we think we do often <laughs> And that there's always something new to learn about God, about faith, and about our journey of faith together. Um, and this time of the year, uh, during Epiphany, we, we talk about the way God is being revealed to us and how a newness comes to us and we can grow and learn. So uh, with that in mind, we have an interesting text today out of Isaiah. Bert, would you help us get started? I'd be glad to. In seminary, I had a professor who loved to talk about aphorisms. They excited him to no end. We would share aphorisms together in class. He would give us assignments to go home and come up with our own aphorisms. An aphorism is, of course, a concise, easy-to-remember statement of wisdom or truth. Some of my professor's favorites came from his own seminary professor, the legendary Dr. John Hendricks, who said things like, experience is what you get when you don't get what you wanted. 
<laughs> and nothing never happens. As I pondered today's passage from Isaiah, I thought about that. Experience is what you get when you don't get what you wanted, because our text is about people not getting what they were expecting, but also nothing never happens. I'll get to that in a minute. In my Good News Bible, the today's English version, which came out in the mid-1970s, still one of my favorites, Isaiah chapter 9 is given the heading, The Future King. Oh, and I just love that because I'm a big fan of T.H. White's classic, The Once and Future King. So you can imagine my disappointment when I found out that there's nothing about King Arthur in Isaiah's text, though it does lean into the traditions of King David. Of all the entire book that is attributed to Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are most widely agreed upon to be directly attached to the actual prophet, Isaiah, who lived in Jerusalem in the 8th century before the Common Era. And we've discussed this before. Scholars tend to divide the book at least into two sections, first Isaiah, second Isaiah. Some argue even three sections with a third Isaiah. For those of you keeping score at home, that puts today's text clearly in the first Isaiah section. Isaiah has a strong bent toward nationalism, and he opposes King Ahaz's compromises compromises that he is making and adapting to the Assyrian Empire. Of course, Ahaz is known as an evil and idolatrous uh, king and not prone to listening to the prophet Isaiah's advice or any other prophet for that matter. And Isaiah was committed. Even though Isaiah didn't like Ahaz, he was committed to the Davidic lineage of kingship through which God would bring peace, prosperity, and salvation to the people. Ahaz was just screwing it all up. So when he's gone, the next in line would be a better Davidic king who would rise and meet all those high, perfect expectations. One scholar notes that verses 2 through 7 can be interpreted as a coronation hymn celebrating the crown prince, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, who would ascend to the throne following Ahaz's death. And what beautiful, powerful, poetic imagery Isaiah gives us in those few verses. (laughs) Where would composer Handel be if not for Isaiah? The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they dwell in the land of the shadow of death. Upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Y'all sing with me, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And, you know, you know the song. Of course, Isaiah adds stuff between Handel's lifting of these verses, stuff that about justice for the oppressed, breaking the yoke that burdens them, defeating the oppressing the oppressing nation, stuff about the boots of the invaders and their bloodstained clothes being destroyed by fire, you know, military might and all that kind of good stuff, while adding to the promise of a new king who will rule, who will rule with the power and justice just as King David did, the right way of a King David successor. Until the end of time, even, the Lord Almighty has determined this to be so, Isaiah says. Now, there's a lot we can unpack from this text, 
like acknowledging that in Judaism, this is read as a passage about a coming king, specifically maybe the son of Ahaz, who in fact, unlike Ahaz, will rule as God intends, as David is seen to have ruled. It is a text that lends itself to be lifted and applied again and again and again. Every time a people are in trouble, every time a people seem to be in darkness, surrounded by confusion and chaos, this is a, there is a certainty of hope in this text, a certain promise of a vision that a better future is on the way. Dare I say an idyllic time of holy Camelot? Maybe there is some underlying connection between the Arthurian themes and this prophet's hope for a just and righteous and perfect kingdom on earth. Ultimately, in our Christian tradition, we naturally hear this beautiful passage and we relate it to Jesus, our Lord himself, which brings me back to these aphorisms. This is the week that we celebrate Epiphany, the awareness of of God in Christ and Christ's work in this world and who Christ is, who Jesus is as the Christ, Isaiah reminds us that God is still at work in the world, even though everything we see around us proclaims otherwise. God does not forget God's promises, even though everything we are experiencing indicates we have long since been forgotten. And Isaiah provides an alternative vision of what is to come, a vision of hope, something to live into, something to imagine to help us get through the dark times today. Something different is coming, and it's not what we see coming based on what we know is happening now. Nothing, Isaiah says, nothing is not happening. God is up to something. Thanks for that background, Bert. And not to major on the minors, but I just I want to point out something here at the beginning that is is really important to me. And I think it does tie into your to your claim over this passage that that God is always up to something. And I love this line, it's verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's one of my favorite passages um, or verses of scripture. Because it, in it, it provides so much hope. You know, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, whether it's a loved one who has been sick and now has a plan for how to move forward, or the fog of depression lifting ever so slightly, or um, whatever the case may be, it, it, that gift of light in darkness doesn't mean everything is instantly okay. It does allow us to move forward one step. And that is, is one of the ways I think God is constantly creating, constantly working, whatever the language we want to use there, by, by giving us hope to continue one more day or to, to try one more new thing. I, I just, I just wanted to mention that before I forgot it, that I know you said a, a lot of different things, but that's that's one of the things that sticks out in my mind. Um, I love that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That to me is indicative that God is not done creating. God is not done with us. 
and I'll I'll follow up on that, David uh, Daniel, with um, this this constant darkness and light that's in this text, and and mm-hmm. walking in darkness and seeing a great light, not you know getting through the darkness into the light, but you're in the darkness and you see the light. Reminds me of that beautiful is it is Psalm one thirty nine right that to God even the darkness is as light right that there's, right. there's we see one thing we or we can't see. But even when we can't see, God is still light. God, light is still there. So you could see a light even in darkness, it seems to imply. It, it, anyway, I don't know where I'm going mm-hmm. with that, except maybe there's a connection to that, that, that idea in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Bert, I, I thought it was fascinating that you highlighted clearly they're familiar verses that Handel used but also the parts that were not used, which also echoes this kind of, you know, we know that the Song of Mary has similar themes in it, right? And was also ignored in many places, even banned, right, in some places. I don't know what we talk about there, but that, that to me is, is both fascinating and very troubling, that, that the whole justice and freedom from oppression themes that we see in this text, in the Song of Mary, in so many places, how easily we can walk over them and and not not really linger there like we do on these other portions. I wonder if that has anything to do from, from our Christian tradition with our applying at least the handle version, the handle selections, specifically to Jesus. And obviously Isaiah meant Jesus. Obviously Isaiah meant Jesus. And Jesus is, forgives our sins and gets us to heaven. I'm not discounting that. Please hear me. But like you said with Mary's song and things Jesus says, this is all very here and now earthly in the midst of an oppressed people yes. under a violent rule of an empire. It's and the that's darkness. Cool. Yes, that's Isaiah that's Mary, that's the time of Jesus, that's the word for us today, that under the darkness of a violent empire, these promises will come to pass. I don't know for sure, but I, I think you know part of the reason that passages like this are so powerful, and David, as you alluded to, Mary's Magnificat, was public reading of it was banned as as uh, as late as I believe the 1980s in uh, in places of Central America, because the last thing an oppressor wants to do is allow the oppressed to have hope, because hmm. uh, then your days are numbered. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to back off so Nikki can get some words in in a minute. But but what you just said. I mean, if we put this in a historical, real-world empire kind of connection to what Isaiah was experiencing and Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem, you know, and what you said, Daniel, Vladimir Putin was counting on being able to crush the hope of the people of Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. To crush it, to wipe it out so there is no hope, and they would just surrender, or he could you know, crush them out as he wipes them out. And their hope is resilient. Mm. <laughs> you know, you're seeing a people of hope who see something different uh, for their people, which is why they are apparently, they're lasting, they're enduring, they're, they persevering. Are, they're persevering through this pro- uh, persecution. 
very biblical stuff when you think about it. When I read this passage, I, I like Daniel, focus, often find myself gravitating toward that verse, the people who have been darkness have seen a great light. And I think that no matter what time we live in, there is darkness in this world. Um, it might be abroad. It might be right where we are. It might be in our own personal lives or in the lives of people that we care about. Darkness is a reality. It, it is ever present in this world in which we exist. And what I really love about this passage and about what we've been talking about, you know, is that when we know that we are people of God, we know that we are not people of darkness, but that we are people of light. And that by being claimed as a child of God, there has been light in our life. And by choosing to live as a child of God, we choose to be a part of that light in this world. Um, we choose to live our lives in ways that shines light, not just for ourselves, but for other people who are around us. We choose to believe that the darkness is not the end, but rather that the light and the hope will always have the last word. That's what I, that's what I think about with this passage. I think it is, it is so familiar and it is familiar in so many ways to us. There is a depth of faith in the passage and that it, it calls us to be a part of that light and that hope even when it feels like darkness is all around. When we think about darkness, um, we, we can think about contemporary examples, such as what Bert has mentioned with uh, the war in Ukraine. We can think about places of oppression in South America or in other parts of the world, or even in our own land, where there are uh, kinds of oppression and repression that occur for women and people of color, for people who are different. But we often return to the Holocaust as an example of the most bitter of darkness. One of the survivors, Elie Wiesel, wrote a book called Night, which is clearly about darkness and the darkness of that day. And in his preface, which he updated, of course, as the book became much more popular than he ever imagined, he explains a bit about why he thinks it's important for us to remember and for this story to be told, for him to write this book, but ultimately for all those who survive terrible things to be able to have the strength to share their stories and to speak out. And he says it like this. He says, sometimes I'm asked if I know, quote, the response to Auschwitz, end quote. I answer that not only do I not know it, but that I don't even know if a tragedy of this magnitude has a response. 
What I do know is that there is response in responsibility. When we speak of this era of evil and darkness so close and yet so distant, responsibility is the key word. The witness has forced himself to testify for the youth of today, for the children who will be born tomorrow. He does not want his past to become their future. I think he wrote these words also because he has hope that the future does not have to be like the past and that we have the ability to embrace the light that is here in spite of the darkness that does remain. May we read this passage from Isaiah and hear in it this call to be a people of hope because other people, us included, but other people need to see this hope and believe in this hope. Because as Vizel says, it is worth it. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.